The average person spends roughly 10,000 days of their adult life working. So this is 10,000 Days, a podcast exploring career journeys and the ways that we can apply that time to make a positive impact in the world. The goal of this podcast is to offer you tools, strategies, and inspiration to reflect on your own career. We have an amazing lineup of guests joining us this season that will help you navigate your journey, design the career that you want, and find the courage to make it happen. So welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to the very first episode of the 10,000 Days podcast. I'm Ian Brody, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Greg Ogiba. First off, a huge thank you to you, the listeners, for joining us on this ride. And it's going to be a fun ride, Ian. Since this is our first podcast of the season, for the benefit of the audience, why don't we introduce ourselves? Well, I'm an educational consultant, having led career development and training programs for a few different industries and sectors now. I am a millennial myself, and and I think I fit the typical perception of the millennial in a lot of ways. Uh, I'd say I'm about three to four thousand days into my ten thousand day total, and I often find myself reflecting on my career. You know, I, I want to find meaning in my work. I want to find pride. I want to be able to see the impact of my work, and at the same time, I, I want to support my family and, and grow personally and professionally. I get that. And, and I'm a millennial as well. I'm right at the, the tail end of that generation where we grew up with uh, dial-up internet. And at one point I had a, a beeper. Do you remember those? <laughs> no way. Uh, so I, I think I'm getting pretty close to the halfway mark in my 10,000 days. And I spent most of my career working in the fresh produce industry, uh, mainly focused on the sales and uh, commercial and customer side of the supply chain. That's, w- that's what I still do. And I also spend a lot of time with, uh, with startup entrepreneurs and, and students launching new companies. So I love the idea of career development. And, and, and personally, I love the idea of taking on new challenges to learn and to grow. And I think this, this podcast is a great example because you and I, Ian, we've made podcasts before, but nothing like this where we started with an idea and we end up here with, with this final product. So it's, it's been really challenging but a lot of fun. And, and I hope it makes an impact with, uh, with our listeners. Yeah. And, and that impact is what this podcast is going to be all about. We want this to be an opportunity for you, the listeners, to reflect and to analyze yourselves and your career and give you some tools and ideas to strategize going forward. One fundamental question that is driving this podcast for me is what are the things that I wish people told me when, when I was starting out. And our first guest, Dave Merrill, talks about building a career strategy. And we discuss how taking control and building that strategy right now is, is more important than ever, given the market today and, and given this great contemplation or the great resignation that, that's being tossed around. And Greg, Day is someone that you know from your career. Yeah, I, I know Day very well. So full disclosure, she's been my own career coach for seven or eight years. And her experience is is diverse and she tells it like it is. So she's helped me to navigate my own path and and to really build the type of career that I want. Once I figure that part out, she's also helped me to to find the courage that's required to take the next step. So Day uh, Day is excellent. Day Merrill, she's a career counselor uh, that has extensive experience coaching, training, consulting, 
and has also been a career coach for the accelerated and executive MBA programs at Western University's Ivy Business School. Prior to this day, worked for human capital management firms and also served as associate director of the MBA program at New York University's Stern School of Business. Yeah, and what what I thought was most relevant about the the interview we did with Dave, and something to listen for, is the idea of the career strategy and how that's changed uh, over time, as well as the importance of developing what what she calls a personal value proposition. All right, let's jump into it. Here's our interview with Dave Merrill. Welcome to the Ten Thousand Days Podcast, Dave Merrill. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. Greg and I chatted uh, about your bio already in the intro, but maybe in, in a couple sentences, how do you describe what you do? I, I believe everybody has what I would call a kind of a true nature and purpose. And that if you figure out what that is, you're going to see how it shows up in many different avenues throughout your life. So mine is I'm a transition advocate. So my job in life is to help people get from where they are to where they need to or want to go. And that's played out in many different contexts, uh, initially as a high school teacher, uh, certainly as a uh, university administrator working with an MBA program, uh, as a parent, but very definitely as a career management coach. Because my job in that context is to help people understand you know, who they are, what they're all about, and then what to do with that. And then once they know what they want, the nuts and bolts of, okay, how do we get there? You're going to make an excellent guest uh, on, on the show because with this 10,000 Days podcast, we're putting the lens on the career, looking at it as this window in our lives where we aim to find meaning, we aim to create positive impacts in the world, we aim to find success, however we define that word. And within that career window are jobs, roughly seven to 15 uh, that that we'll have throughout our adult life. And now those jobs and those career changes, many people are finding are happening more and more frequently across sectors and across industries, across the board. In your view and from your experience, why are we seeing this increase in, in job changes? That's an excellent question. This is a phenomenon that I've been literally observing uh, firsthand since the mid-80s, when uh, a seminal article by Richard Bowles, the author of What Color Is Your Parachute, appeared in Forbes magazine that talked about the end of the job. And people were shocked and outraged by the, the concept of the end of the job, because for many generations, Uh, work had been defined in terms of a particular kind of employment relationship where your duties, tasks, skills, whatever, were packaged into a box called a job. And there was a lot of uh, sort of outrage that, well, people won't stand for this. It's like, people aren't going to get to vote on that because as the world has changed and we started to see uh, lots of shifts in industries the beginnings of globalization, lots of consolidations, uh, companies were no longer in a position to offer the kind of uh, employment contract of sort of lifetime uh, womb-to-tomb employment. And as a result, 
industries were uh, shaken up a lot, some decimated. I can think of, let's say, the steel industry in the in the 80s was sort of an early uh, bellwether for that. Uh, and as a result, the jobs that people were counting on to last them through retirement uh, started disappearing. And it started off at the level of workers, and it worked all its way up through middle management and, and senior executives. So the, the factors have been have been historic ones that have certainly been uh, accelerated by the increasing pace of globalization, mm -hmm. um, the emphasis on uh, what I would call an unbalanced scorecard of profits over everything, uh, and of course, it, most recently, the ravages of uh, the COVID situation have seen itself play out uh, in the health of the employment market, as well as in terms of our actual physical health. Mm -hmm. And Day, there's a lot that we're going to touch on in this interview. I think we were seeing a lot of the job trends happening even before COVID, people transitioning to non-traditional careers or hybrid careers, flexible work arrangements, and so on. Those have all been accelerated by the pandemic. And you mentioned the book, What Color Is Your Parachute, which, which I have here. It's a great book, and it seems to get updated every couple of years. Yeah, if I was going to write a follow-up to that, I would call Pack Your Own Parachute. Because, uh, you know, the whole idea that understanding your value proposition, which is what color is your parachute, what is it that you're you're bringing, um, is, is great. But I think that there are still people who assume that the onus of responsibility is external. And when you talked about things, uh, Greg, like hybrid careers and, and entrepreneurial ventures and, and hybrid self-employment, various different forms of work, there have always been people who have worked uh, independently, but that has been exacerbated throughout what I would call the mainstream workforce, that even uh, people employed in uh, large organizations, corporations, are really having to look at the fact that basically they work for themselves and they happen to be employed for a given period of time at Acme Widgets or whatever the, their employer is uh, at, at that point in time. So you mentioned a value proposition. Is that something that has changed as well? So you mentioned, you know, years ago working at uh, IBM for, for 40 years and, and with a college degree, and then you retire with a gold watch. Did individuals have a value proposition then, or is it now much more important? And it's sort of a different ballgame. I, I, I think they didn't think of it that way. Um, but I think that in the days of IBM, it used to be you know, we used to joke that IBM stood for I'll be moving because the company would just decide where they needed you and send you there. Um, the the trade-off was that unless you committed the sins of wearing a blue shirt or, you know, dancing with the boss's wife in the punch bowl at the Christmas party, you literally couldn't get fired. So the value proposition really had to do with uh, being a good corporate citizen. And I think we saw this uh, initially, you know, stemming from the, the post-Second uh, World War, man in the gray flannel suit, the organization man, which eventually morphed into the organization person uh, as more and more women entered the workforce. But largely, that was the deal. So the value proposition was, you know, you're going to be loyal to me. I'm going to be loyal to you. You're going to tell me what you need, and I will fulfill that. 
if you need me to get trained in something, you're going to send me off to, to learn that. And I'm going to give you an honest uh, day's work and do go over and above and beyond as needed. And that worked very nicely for as long as it lasted. It's a, in my opinion, a pretty paternalistic relationship because the organization acts as a, uh, a parent, which is, you know what, if you're good and keep your nose clean and do your chores, then every two weeks you'll get an allowance. So that's really shifted. And, and so that was one point in history that, that we look back on. And the timing for this podcast as another point in history where we lived through these massive shifts in the job market. How would you describe the job market right now? If there's a stronger word than volatile, I would want to use it because <laughs> it, it seems almost weekly, if not daily, you will read new statistics, which is there's you know decimated uh, industries, X million people in the U.S. and Canada worldwide have lost their jobs, and these industries, you know, may never come back. Think of things like airlines, you know, cruise ship, various things that have been really, really walloped by the impact of of COVID. Uh, and then when things start to settle down, at least appear to be settling down a little bit, then you suddenly hear there's a war for talent. We have to hire more mm. people and, and companies are looking to bring people back. So there's this whipsaw uh, effect that really depends on who you are, where you are, and when you are. So this is why understanding the value proposition is so important because in a way, the only thing you can count on is you because the, the companies are going to do what is in their vested interest. That's why they exist. But we have to, as individuals, make sure that we're doing the same thing, which would mean, you know, during the fat times, we got to ride that as long as we can and then prepare for the lean times because those will be coming in different industries at at different times. Mm -hmm. So I currently support a, an executive MBA program. And within any given cohort, there are people who are seriously at risk of losing their jobs or who have lost them, while others are being headhunted and poached uh, and incented to stay and promoted like crazy. And it's uneven because the market is uneven. I just want to go back to something you mentioned about you know IBM and those type of companies where it was really difficult to get fired. And then you mentioned now this, this personal value proposition. So the question is, is loyalty dead between the employer and the employee and vice versa? I, I think the old form of it, would the, the answer would have to be yes. Because there was an unspoken or sometimes actually negotiated employment contract which is if you do ABC, you will get X, Y, Z, Z from, from us. And as companies have been forced to change, then they are no longer in the position to make those offers. And companies that used to be lifetime employers, if you look back at some of those, those big names from decades past, many of those don't even exist anymore. So there, there's no, there is no... Um, kind of lifelong uh, employment. And as a result, nobody's in a position to offer that kind of loyalty. 
not on an individual basis, nor on a corporate basis. I mean, you could take a job with a well-established company, be brought in by, let's say, your old boss from a couple of jobs ago, think everything is fine, there's a shakeup, your boss gets let go, all of a sudden, you're at risk. So in a way, people have got to be able to pivot very, very quickly, which means understanding who you are, what you have going for you, irrespective of what's going on, and to really look at, at any moment, you could be at risk, and therefore, what are you going to do, right? Everybody has their plan, in the, and I talk to people, well, I've got my 15-year plan by this date, I'm going to be this, that, and the other. It's like, good luck with that. I, you know, that may or may not be the case. Much better to have a strategy, which is, I'm going to make sure that I'm really clear on who I am and what I have to offer. Very often when I do um, group work, I will say to people, okay, so if your job or industry were to disappear tomorrow, put down something you could do in terms of another job, something that you could do on a contract basis, something that you could do uh, if you were um, to, to start something you know, entrepreneurial, uh, and something that you could do in an entirely different sector. And that helps to get people out of the, you know, when we talk about thinking outside the box, jobs are, are boxes. And, and when people stop thinking about this job, this company as their defining element, and instead saying, these are the skills and abilities that I have, where are they going to be needed? It sounds like a healthier mindset to have as well. You know, I think so. I mean, yeah. some people, you know, I have people who lose their jobs. I, I worked many, many years in what's called the outplacement industry, career transition. People whose jobs have been let go, often through no fault of their own. Maybe they didn't get along with somebody. Maybe it was part of a downsizing. Um, but they often will come in and, and say to me things like, well, next time, you know, I want a really good permanent, full-time, mm. secure job with a great Canadian company that I can count on. And I said, that's wonderful. Let us know when you find that because these things just don't exist anymore. And we're still running off of models that we've inherited from previous generations. I mean, the whole idea of a, of a job as the package that work comes in is, is relatively new. I mean, it's really part of the you know, industrial revolution and then the workers' conditions and union rules that set certain things like working hours and things like that. So this is new territory for a lot of people. But for most of human existence, there were no such things as jobs. I have a question for you, Dave. So yeah. in terms of for people that you coach in your outplacement service, yes, and this might be a difficult question to answer, but what percentage pre-COVID were sort of surprised by that that move and what percentage would you say are are surprised now so i'm trying to gauge are they more prepared given the volatility that's what's happening you know what and that's been an historical shift as well when outplacement was started it was really a place where if an executive was let go they could go to an office in their suit with their briefcase and be given a mock office with a credenza and a telephone. And in a way they could still kind of like go to work. And I have been in the industry long enough that I remember people who never told their spouses, never told them that they had been let go. So they, they, their identity was so tied up in their job that they 
had to have a place to kind of, I'm in the office, I must be doing, you know, valuable work as they use their old boys network to try to land something new. That really got got upended, uh, you know, by the late 80s and 90s. And by the by the the millennium, a couple of things had happened. One is people got more used to the idea that this had happened. Secondly, uh, the stigma started to drop. It used to be like if you got let go, it was that you'd been fired. In other words, there was a problem with you, as opposed to something had happened within your industry. And as that started to uh, to shift people would start talking cautiously to others and realize, oh, this has happened to everybody else. When I do group workshops, I'll say, how many people have ever, you know, lost a job? And it's like, okay, the rest of you might as well put your hands up because chances are it's going to happen to you as well. So now COVID has accelerated that. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is a lot of this stuff impacted the baby boomers who are now part of what's called the great retirement. A lot of baby boomers who continued to work, many because they had to, uh, you know, when COVID hit, it's kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to cash in my chips. They, you know, converted their real estate into money. And there's been a huge wave of uh, retirement. There's also been a huge wave of resignations. As a matter of fact, the great resignation disproportionately among women. Uh, But a lot of people said, you know what, this is too squirrely. I mean, the people who are at risk, are concerned about losing their job. The people who are left are concerned about how do I do three other people's work in the same amount of time? I've had it. So they've resigned. The other factor is that as subsequent generations have come along, the Gen X and especially the millennium, have seen the stuff that happened to their parents who gave that loyalty and got nothing in return. They're going like, there's no trade-off here. So when people talk about, you know, millennials don't have the same work ethic, why should they? Because the, the boomers got caught in this, you know, the swinging door. It's like, hey, you know, don't let this hit you in the fanny on the way out. Bye, Felicia. So, yeah, <laughs> millennials are, are generally much more focused on, you know, who they are and, and what it is they want. And they, you know, it's a joke in terms of their work ethic. In my experience, they work even harder and they work even smarter. Day, I mean, I feel like you're talking directly to me as someone who, not to say that I think that loyalty is dead, but certainly, you know, I've been fluid in my career path thus far. And uh, I, I'm just going to take this free coaching right now. As- and, and that kind of fluidity, which, you know, you could call, you know, flexibility, agility, really sustainable career a rubric big enough to cover all of the various things. And this whole idea of career, what I'm finding is that for most people, they can't really define what their career has been, except in retrospect. You know, after 10 or 15 years, then it's like, oh, I see how this thing that I did right out of school helped. And and it, it starts to make sense. But the whole idea that you can plan a career. I mean, there certainly are people who who can can do that. I mean, if you train intensively to become a doctor and you become a doctor and that's what you do, sure. Uh, but there is a, a lot more fluidity, even in the formerly sort of career path areas, such as large-scale corporations, government, big nonprofits, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And I, just speaking from my own experience, I mean, when you're in university, you're in your early 20s, you're starting out, you have a plan. And that plan 
changes. And I think it changes because there's so many variables in your life that, that continue to change alongside, whether that is family, whether that is the lifestyle that you want to have, um, the balance that you want to have, finding meaning in your work, creating an impact in your work. I think these are certainly things that change and adapt throughout a person's life, especially, especially in their twenties and thirties. Um, so talking about all of those considerations and how they may vary from person to person and how they may vary from time to time, what are those key considerations? Balance, impact, meaning, you know, obviously money is, is a motivator, but are, are there any other core motivators uh, that, that people, you know, should be prioritizing or considering? Well, I think it's not a question of should. I think it's a question of is. Because when you say, well, obviously money is a motivator for some people, for some people, money is a main motivator. That's what we would call an extrinsic motivation, which is I work in order to get money, which allows me to do X, whatever that is. There are other people that make trade-offs because for them, the nature of the work uh, is more important. So intrinsic motivation, which is this allows me to be creative, or this allows me to be of service, or this allows me to work close to home. Those decisions, those factors are really based on values. And I think it's important to for people to understand there's kind of a core of, of us that has always been true and always will be true. And then the, the constellation around that are various factors that are going to impact the choices that we make. So we may have a very strong you know, value around uh, you know, autonomy and independence. But if there is a, a situation that warrants uh, something that is more structured, because that supports something else that is more important to us, then that probably will be a good trade-off, at least for the time being. I mean, at the end of the day, who we are is always going to leak out. So the more we understand who we are and figure out how can that be used and useful? How can I trade this for money? How can I find meaning using these, this particular set of skills? Uh, you know, what can I do that supports the things that are important to me, like my family or, you know, a need for, for variety or challenge or uh, a need to, to stay put for, for right now? Uh, recognizing that all of those other factors will will shift and adapt depending on again you know what what's going on uh, for yourself and within a market, but really looking at what are the things that are incontrovertibly true about yourself that you better make sure that you honor, so that if for instance you are wildly extroverted you're not going to be happy in a job that requires you to be you know, hunkered down by yourself, not dealing with other people. So it's really an inside job. The best thing that people can do is understand this is who I am. This is how I work. These are the things that are always going to work for me. And when I, when I work with clients, sometimes if people are confused, I'll say, well, like, so what did you want to do when you were five years old? Because that's when we don't have any of those um, filters. So it, for myself, I wanted to be either an actress or a missionary, which sounds kind of like two competing desires. But guess what? I, I get to do that. 
right? I mean, my missionary zeal is around helping people find success and satisfaction and work. And the actress part comes from, I have to be a chameleon. I have to be the right coach for the person that I'm dealing with. So depending on who that person is, I can be very free-flowing. If they need to be opened up, I can be very disciplined and structured if they need uh, that approach. So I have found a way to satisfy that, that five-year-old ambition. Greg, what did you want to be when you were five years old? I actually don't know. I, I can't remember. I, I think I wanted to be in business and I wanted to, to make money and make a difference, make an impact. So that's, that's is what I'm trying to do. Um, so, so on this topic, there's lots of studies that depending on which one you read that the majority of college graduates in the U S or Canada are not doing what they went to school for. So they're not, they're not studying or they're not doing what they studied to do. Uh, your husband, for instance, we spoke in the pre-call, he has a, a MIT degree in physics, right? As far as I know, he's not doing physics. So I get it. my question is what, I mean, we don't have to go into his story necessarily, but why do people then study something at that age when it's statistically likely they're going to do something else? Well, I think that a lot of this has to do with our perceptions on what education is for. There's a lot of push these days in high schools and even younger for education uh, in terms of like STEM science related stuff or, you know, business related. And I think, you know, for some people, that's great. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an era where a broad liberal arts undergraduate education was seen as a good foundation. And interestingly enough, the people with that kind of education are often people who when they do find their way or articulate, who can think broadly, they see cross correlations. So, you know, the fact that I majored in, you know, English is not a, a, a waste. Um, but people need to think about is education training? Is this a career training ground? I mean, I was I was working both sides of that street. I loved literature, but I also knew, knew that I would need to support myself. So I got my teaching degree at the same time. So that paid off my student loans and gave me my first career as a teacher, which was, was terrific. But I think that, you know, the true purpose of education coming from the Latin educare to lead somebody out is really to lead people out of darkness in, in a way, ignorance. And so the broader the education we have, whenever we get that, the, the uh, you know, the better we are able we're going to able to, to be to solve individual challenges and problems and also, you know, larger ones. So I, I would say to expect a 16 or 17 year old to decide what they're going to study because that's going to put them on this career track is, is pretty unrealistic. I mean, the twenties are times to, are times to mess around. Now, there are going to be some people who are going to froth at the mouth about that. Great. If they are on a particular track, then good for them. Because that stuff will probably show up in midlife when they have some kind of a crisis and, and re-examine their lives. So we're all, you know, we're all in a different, uh, a different schedule. But I would say the most important thing is to know 
what is it that I can do that somebody needs enough that they'll pay me for? Because then you're, you're, you're really setting yourself up for what I consider the two goalposts for career, which is success and satisfaction, which is enjoying what you do. Because if you have satisfaction without success, it's not a job, it's a hobby. But if you have success without satisfaction, it can be a life sentence. Lots of miserable people out there. Going back to a comment you made earlier about the, the next generation is that they work harder or as hard as former generations, uh, but they also work smarter. What, what did you mean by that? Well, now that we're no longer tethered to that, that work is in a job and it's defined by other people, I, I think that, that millennials are recognizing that they can do what they want to do, how and when they want to do it. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that we're going to Costa Rica for the winter. It's a big adventure for us. It's with our millennial uh, children. And my son-in-law runs a digital marketing agency. Most of his clients are in the States. Some are in Canada. Some are overseas. Whether he's in Costa Rica, Canada, or Cincinnati isn't really going to make any difference. His office is his phone and his laptop. So he's going to be able to uh, explore what a different lifestyle looks like while continuing to run a successful business. So that old linear model of, you know, learn, earn, retire, that's, that's not happening. And, and millennials are saying, no, I don't want to wait till I'm 65 or 70 to try some of these things. I, I want to blend those in to my life uh, experiences. And, and they're doing that. So Costa Rica in the winter, do you have extra space for, for us? <laughs> we can always find space for you, Greg. <laughs> Continue this podcast in uh, yeah, Costa Rica. Exactly. That sounds good to me. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Day, how can people learn more about this topic and what you're doing at uh, To Be Determined? I think probably the best thing for them to do would be to connect up with me, uh, Day Merrill, on LinkedIn, and also check out our website, which is www.tobedetermined.ca. And I'm going to spell this because... It, it, otherwise, people will get confused. It's the numeral two, letter B, letter determined dot CA. And the reason that we named our company uh, to be determined is our motto is that the future is still to be determined. So be determined. All right. Well, Dave, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here talking to you and to your listeners. And thank you for the, the free uh, coaching session. <laughs> yeah, I both appreciate that. For our own <laughs> no extra charge. <laughs> that was a great interview with Dave Merrill. And I hope everyone heard something that they could apply. And it really sets the stage well for the episodes ahead. On the next episode, we have Professor Steve Gideon, who is the chair of the Ryerson Entrepreneur Institute at Ryerson University. He has an insanely impressive CV and wrote a book on using entrepreneurial principles for life and career design. And it is a great book because it not only talks about applying these entrepreneurial principles, but also how to do it. So we discuss with, with Professor Gideon practical tools and strategies for discovery, execution, and so on. So be sure to join us. 
And before we wrap up, a quick shout out to a good friend, JP Davidson at Pop-Up Podcasting here in Ottawa for helping us get set up. If you or anyone you know is considering starting a podcast or need some help with other virtual events remotely, reach out to JP at popuppodcasting.ca. This has been the 10,000 Days Podcast. We'll see you soon.